getting back into Matthew again today, we've taken a few weeks off from the book of Matthew, but we're going to get back into chapter 17 where we left off, chapter 17, verse 24. <clears throat> like Mike uh, alluded to earlier or said earlier, in this passage, Jesus is going to address the, a practical issue, an issue of, of taxes, taxation. But in doing so, he's going to be revealing some important truths about his identity, his relationship with the authorities on earth, and as his role as the ultimate authority in the lives of believers. So let's read the passage together. Matthew 17, starting in verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he said. Simple conversation. Conversation ends. When he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? From strangers, he said. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But so we won't offend them, go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, and take the, fish, the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and you. All right, so first I want us to look at the, the context of what's going on and see what exactly is, is happening here. And then we'll look at what it means, and then finally what implications it may have for us. And it's been a little while, again, since we last left Matthew, so I want to just quickly review where we are in the book, in the narrative context of the bigger picture. We're in the third and final movement of Matthew, nearing uh, the, the culmination of Jesus' ministry on earth. Jesus has begun to speak to his disciples more and more and less and less subtly about eventually going to Jerusalem and his eventual death and resurrection. In fact, in the previous two verses, if you look at verses 22 and 23, this is the second time he just flat out says it, that he will be killed. And even here's where he adds the detail that he didn't add before, that he will be betrayed into the hands of men. In verse 23, it says his disciples were deeply distressed. They were filled with grief. So imagine the disciples a little on edge, not really sure how to feel or think. They're just, they're disturbed. Filled with grief. And that's really understandable. I mean, that would be a disturbing thing to hear, wouldn't it? Even though he does say that on the third day, he will be raised up. Even if I, in the place of one of his disciples, even if I really understood and believed that, which we, we know that they really didn't, but even if I did, I still wouldn't want to see my teacher, who I love, my friend, be betrayed and then tortured and killed. That said, they're not yet there. They're not, we're not to that part of the story yet, but the, the disciples are starting to kind of see it coming. But they're not in Jerusalem, um, and Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, will be doing some more teaching and, and traveling with his followers. Right now, they're actually quite a, way long, uh, quite a ways away from Jerusalem still, towards the north. They're at the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Jerusalem was quite a ways uh, south from that, or is. So they're still in the Galilee region, and here they come to the village of Capernaum. This is a small little fishing village right on the shore. The village population was about 1,500 people. Uh, for reference, Carthage is uh, 
more than, more than twice that. It's like 33,000. So it's less than half the population of Carthage. It's a very small village. Now, at this point in the narrative, we're, we're coming to, we're getting close to the close of Jesus' ministry in the, the region of Galilee. This is the last time he'll be in Galilee. Uh, from here, he's going to travel to Jerusalem, and, and, and from there we'll see, um, or before that, we'll see the fourth major section of teaching uh, that he'll leave Galilee with, uh, with this section of teaching right after this story. And what happens in this story is some tax collectors come up to Peter, Simon Peter, and they ask him a question. Now, it's important to realize, though, these are not the same type of tax collectors as the author, Matthew, of this book. We, we read how Jesus called Matthew a tax collector to follow him, and he did. But what Matthew did before following Jesus was to collect, to collect taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire from his fellow Jews, and that's why he would have been so despised by the Jews, uh, because the Romans imposed burdensome taxes upon all the regions that they, they ruled, including Israel. And then in a, in a few chapters, Jesus is actually going to address the topic of paying taxes to the Roman government, but in this case, we're looking at a different type of tax altogether. Now, depending on your translation, it may say temple tax, or it may say, two drachma tax, or double drachma tax. Uh, two drachma, that sim is simply the Greek term or, or uh, um, currency, that is, and they're both used in reference to a yearly contribution that Jews were to bring to the temple. In the Old Testament, or the, the Hebrew term is a half shekel, so that's just referring to a different currency, but a half shekel, about the same as uh, two drachma. So a whole shekel, by the way, would be four drachma. Now the temple tax, or the, the half shekel, the two drachma tax, this was a Jewish tax. It was instituted way back in the time of Moses, and it was collected by, uh, from every male over the age of 20. Once you turn 20, you were you know, supposed to be you know, working and paying this tax. And it went directly to the upkeep of the temple. Keep things running smoothly and to meet the needs of the, the priests who were dedicated to working in the temple. Of course, you can imagine how over time those priests could come to abuse the proceeds of that tax and, and become corrupted. So there was some, uh, some uh, controversy there. And Jesus will have plenty to say about the corruption of the temple later on. We'll see once he gets to Jerusalem. But still, even though there may have been corruption, he doesn't hesitate to contribute as a faithful Jew to this tax. And this tax probably would have been, in general, more, much more palatable than, than those that were imposed by Rome. It was designated long before the Roman Empire, all the way back in Exodus. It went to the Jewish temple, theoretically, to support the, the work of the Jewish priests and maintain Jewish facilities, not paying the salaries of Roman officials and Roman infrastructure. And really, it wasn't that burdensome of a task. It would have been roughly equivalent to three days' wages. Uh, for the average citizen, and it only had to be paid once a year. That said, you know, it, it, it's not just like a quarter. It, it wouldn't necessarily be easy to just come up with on the spot, especially if you weren't working, uh, and let alone for two people, that's double the amount. So when they do find that whole shekel in the, the fish's mouth, that's a four drachma coin, that's not like just finding a, a penny. You know, it'd be like finding 500 bucks in the mouth of a fish. It just doesn't happen. And yet that's exactly what happened. 
And the, the tax collectors asked Peter, it, Peter's kind of the spokesperson of the group, doesn't Jesus pay the temple tax? He says yes. Again, it's a simple conversation. But then what it get, when it gets interesting is where he goes inside and talks to Jesus, and, and Jesus essentially tells him, you know what? It's not really necessary for us to pay that tax. God doesn't really require us to pay that tax, but we don't want to cause trouble, so go five, find 500 bucks in the fish and give it to him for both of us. That'll cover both of us. So that's what happened, but what does that mean? I mean, it's kind of a bizarre little detail, isn't it? Why did Matthew choose to include this, this detail in the story? And the first thing that jumps out to me really is that it points to the, the sovereignty of God and Jesus' claim to that sovereignty. His statement that he says the sons are free, referring to his little parable of the sons of the king, and he's applying that to the sons of God. The sons are free. And this rings of his statement previously that he, the Messiah, is someone who's actually greater than the temple. Because we're, t- we're talking about the temple tax. And Jesus has said that he's greater than the temple. He's saying that he, as king of the universe, his authority surpasses that of any other human institution, even including the Jewish authorities. Because his authority is God's authority. He is the king of king and the Lord of Lords, and by his authority, his children have been declared free. And we'll talk more about that idea in a moment, but first realize that right after he says the sons are free, he says to pay the tax anyway, right? And this speaks to the role of human governments and institutions. Corrupt as they are, all of them, they are both necessary and ordained by God as a function of a civilized society. And remember, this particular tax was actually commanded by God as part of the civil order of Jewish society. It was part of how their society was supposed to function. It was how the temple was supposed to function. In the Garden of Eden, there was no need for even a temple building at all. No need for government. The only authority that really mattered was God's authority, and then humans were then given authority to rule the earth on his behalf. But when those humans took for themselves that which wasn't theirs to take, they became corrupted and no longer lived in in harmony, in perfect harmony with each other or with God. And one day we, we can look forward to returning to that perfect harmony, but in the meantime, no human is without sin without corrupted desires and motives, and therefore no human institution or government is without its flaws. And yet, as much as I'm willing to bet that if you asked anyone anywhere in the world, they would have something to complain about their government, no matter where. But even still, the one thing worse than having a bad government is having no government at all. Anarchy is not the answer. We saw that even in the book of Judges. When everyone did what was right in their own eyes, chaos and corruption ran rampant. It just multiplies. So God appointed authorities, judges, and eventually kings to keep them accountable to each other and provide leadership and unity. Of course, each one of those kings had issues, but as, in general, they, were, they, they, need, they needed that, that leadership and that structure because they, they failed to really just accept that from God. 
because of our sin, humans, we really need a, some kind of way to, to hold each other accountable, and we need some hierarchy of authority to stay organized and be effective in our role as stewards of the earth. And yet, every authority on earth, even those with the best of intentions, some are better than others, you know, but they're all inherently and inevitably imperfect. Every government and institution that has humans at the top is inherently imperfect. So there's a tension there. We need government, we need structure, we need leadership in any community, really. Even, even in the, uh, the smallest unit of a community, a family, you still need some, some sense of leadership there. And then you need it in, in neighborhoods and, and cities and, and countries. There's this need for leadership, and yet leadership is, is inevitably imperfect. So that's part of the tension that, that Jesus is addressing in this passage. And it really has implications for all of us who are still dealing with that, that tension today. Before paying the tax, Jesus made really a profound statement. He asks Peter, do kings collect taxes from their own sons or from strangers? Of course, kings don't tax their own sons. That would be ridiculous, right? Though in our society, uh, that would be considered corruption if, if like the president's family didn't have to pay taxes. Uh, but that's not the way it was back then. Uh, this is essentially just a rhetorical question to illustrate the point. The sons of the king are free. Back then, taxes were something kings would oppose on other people, not their own family, sometimes not even their own city. While, while Jesus gladly paid the temple tax, he's saying he didn't do it out of obligation to God, rather out of respect for those around him. Seems simple enough, for it, but the implication of this is, the theological implication is, is huge. He's saying that the temple taxes were for his followers, not a theological imperative. That for those who lived in a different cultural context, where the temple tax was not enforced, or maybe if the temple didn't exist, it wouldn't be necessary. And the implications of this go beyond just the tax, because if temple taxes were not a requirement to following Jesus, then neither would be the other sacrifices and offerings to the temple. So this is really setting an important precedent for how his followers would then later on have to deal with the issues of, of Jewish rituals and the clashings of, of different traditions when the Jesus movement becomes multicultural, multi-ethnic, and, and diverse. Jesus has declared anyone who trusts in him to be sons of the king. We're his brothers and sisters. We're fellow heirs to the kingdom of God. This sets us free from slavery, slavery to legalism, from the, the rituals and rules and burdensome expectations of, of legalism. And the Apostle Paul would later write about this uh, quite a bit in his letter to the Galatians. He says, in Galatians 5.1, for freedom, for freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. The implication being that if we are slaves to anything or anyone but Christ, we're, we're inviting that upon ourselves. More importantly, Jesus sets us free from the, the worst slave master of all because he sets us free from slavery to sin itself. 
Paul, again, uh, would later preach this in Jerusalem to his fellow Jews. In Acts chapter 13, 38, he says, Therefore let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that, though this man, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. And also to the Romans, he said, Therefore, Romans 8, 1 and 2, Therefore there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, of course, we have this freedom, but he also says that it's not something that we should take lightly or exploit. In 1 Corinthians, Paul, again, he writes a lot about this. He says in 1 Corinthians 6.12, Everything is permissible for me, you say, but not everything is beneficial. <laughs> so just, just because everything is permissible doesn't mean you should do it. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, don't become slaves to something else because that's idolatry. And again, in Galatians 5, 13 and 14, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not that charitable giving is wrong. Charitable giving is, is a, an excellent spiritual discipline. If there's ever a question as to whether or not you're abusing your freedom as a son or a daughter of the king, simply ask yourself, am I using my freedom in this moment to love my neighbor, to spread the truth and the love of the gospel? Or is it to indulge in my own desires, my own wants, or my own pride? It really comes down to that. And beyond that, you know, it's, though we are free in God's eyes, he still calls us to submit to, our, to human authorities, whoever they may be. Romans 13, 4 through 6, again Paul, he says, For it is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant and avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants continually attending to these tasks. And he's talking about the government here. I may have, should have probably started a couple verses sooner there. But he's talking about submitting to the government. And Paul said this to Christians living still under the Roman Empire a godless government that levied heavy taxes and committed what they would probably have considered injustices frequently. And yet Paul summoned the Christians to honor, to respect, to submit, and pay taxes even. And the taxes are just one example he's using because that happened to be a very controversial topic. Now, the one exception, the one scenario in which it is okay to disobey authorities, and we see this example play out in Acts, when the disciples are told not to preach the gospel, they do it anyway. So it's when, when the authorities are blatantly telling you to go against God's commands, that's when it's okay to disobey. Because again, God's authority is above all others. The chain of command stops at him. 
So an obvious and extreme example that always comes to my mind is, you know, if you're living, living under the, the totalitarian Nazi regime in the you know, 1900s, and you're told to hand over your Jewish neighbors to, to the authorities so that they can be killed, would it be wrong to go against that and to shelter them in your home instead? Well, of course not. No, that would be a good thing to do. And thankfully, that, that reality is in the past, but a very real concern for many Christians still today is living under a government that either outright forbids or strongly discourages worshiping Jesus as a community, of gathering together to worship Jesus, or sharing God's word with others, or dispersing God's word, distributing the Bible. In those cases, it is not wrong to continue doing those things secretly, subversively, because those are essential components to following Jesus. We're commanded to do those things. We all sitting in this room, I think, should be grateful for the political freedom that we, we do enjoy in the United States. Um, again, nobody would say our government is perfect, uh, and, but we do have the luxury of participating in uh, democracy, and though this may not always be the case, right now I'd have a hard time coming up with any justification for rebellion against any laws uh, that we have here in the U.S. Not that, I, not that all of our laws are great, but there's nothing, stop, <clears throat> nothing stopping us, preventing us from worshiping together, from sharing the gospel, or, and there's nothing actively coercing us into sin. So Christians really ought to have a reputation in general for being law-abiding citizens. We're not rebels against the law. Beyond that, though, not just doing the bare minimum. It's not like, oh, as long as I'm not a jailbird, I'm good. We're called to be peacemakers, not troublemakers, not rabble-rousers. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 16, Again, a question of how, how are you going to use your freedom? He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. Is it possible to, to please everyone? No. Has anyone ever tried to please everyone? And it kind of work out poorly? Some people, some people try harder than others. Other people are like, well, I don't care what people think. And other people are like, oh, I, they overthink everything because they really care about what people think. And there's, there's kind of a balance there. I want to emphasize the caveat in verse 18, Romans 12, 18. I, I love this verse. It gives me great comfort in those moments where you're worried about, you know, uh, uh, causing offense or causing trouble. When possible, as far as it depends on you. That's key in this passage, I think. Now, while we should avoid being offensive... If we get too caught up in trying to please everyone, we'll just exhaust ourselves in vain. Plus, our motives, regardless of whether you, which type of personality you are, more of a people pleaser or more of a I'm going to do what I want no matter what people think, 
our motives in getting along with others should be coming from a place of love and respect for our fellow humans. Not out of pride or wanting to be well-liked and admired. There's a difference between getting along with others for their sake because you love them and being just a people pleaser because you care too much about what people think of you and you want people to think highly of you. There's a difference there. Now, finally, this, uh, this passage also contains in it a message of, of hope and in trust, uh, uh, trust in God's provision. Because when, when Jesus sends Peter to go and catch a fish and, and pay the tax with the money that he, that, fi- that he finds in its mouth, he's demonstrating here that God will provide for our needs, even in the most practical and mundane aspects of life. It's a powerful reminder to trust in God's provision, and really to have faith that he'll take care of us, no matter what challenges we may face, no matter what government we're in. One of the names that has been used to refer to God, you may have heard of uh, Jehovah Jireh. Anyone ever hear that before? Jehovah Jireh. It's kind of a mutation of the the original Hebrew, would be Yahweh Yireh, Yahweh Yireh. Uh, And it just means God provides. Yahweh provides. And it's really core to understanding God's identity throughout all of Hebrew scripture. Part of the, the blessing of the Garden of Eden when he first created the world and placed humans in it was the blessing of abundance. He provided food for them. That's part of his identity. And this name, Yahweh Yireh, is first used not actually in reference to God. Anyone know where it's first used? Any chance? Of course you do. You read my notes. <laughs> Did you know before my notes? No. Nah, I knew it. It's actually referring to a place. We find it in uh, Genesis chapter 22. Genesis uh, 22. And this is a story where Abraham is following through with God's command for him to offer up his only remaining son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. Genesis 22 verse 7 is is where Isaac starts to kind of realize what's going on. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and put him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the boy. Do nothing to him. For I know now that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw, behold, there was a ram after it had been caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, <coughs> the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham called that name, the name of that place Yahweh Yireh, Yahweh will provide. As it is said this day in the mount of Yahweh, it will be provided. So 
So Abraham named that place where God provided a ram for sacrifice in place of his son, Isaac. Yahweh provides. And by the way, that's also that location, traditionally, is the location where the, the temple in Jerusalem would, would later be built. So all throughout the rest of the story of, that, of the Bible, we can see that pattern of, of Yahweh, a good father, providing for his children. From providing children to even the barren, to providing water and food in the desert, to providing victory in battle even against all odds, whenever Israel trusted in God to provide for them, rather than trying to take for themselves what they thought was right, going back to that original sin in the garden, he was faithful to provide for them. We fast forward to Matthew, and here Jesus has positioned himself as that provider, that same provider of of Yahweh, the provider of the Old Testament. We've seen it several times before already, from the beginning, where he called his first disciples, and that massive, miraculous catch of fish in their net after a whole day of, of bad luck. We saw it twice, with multiplying loaves and fish twice, so it really shouldn't come as much of a surprise here when Jesus also provides for this tax in this very unexpected way. But Jesus is also positioning himself not only as providing for physical needs like food and money. He's been hinting less and less subtly that he, he himself is the ultimate provision. He himself is being provided to humanity as the end-all, be-all provision. He provides bread and water that is sustenance for life, that unlike physical sustenance, sustenance is everlasting. There's an unending, infinite supply. John 4.14, he says, But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. And of course, he's not talking about literal water. He's talking about spiritual water that then creates a fountain that then can become available to others. John 6.35 says, I am the bread of life. Jesus told them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Again, not literal hunger and thirst, but spiritual hunger and thirst. And one more, John 3, uh, 7, John 7, 38 says, The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. So the very source will come from within you. And then, of course, this concept culminates in Jesus not only supplying sustenance, but being, becoming that which we most desperately need, becoming that sacrificial lamb which takes away the sins of the world by shedding his blood for the covering of our sins. We looked last week through the, the Jewish festivals and specifically Passover, how this, was, this sacrifice of Jesus was foreshadowed by the Passover and the other festivals, the other appointed times that the Jews were to observe throughout the year. Jesus eventually would declare himself during the Last Supper, during a Passover meal, that he is the ultimate provision, that his, the, the bread and the wine would become symbols for his body and his blood. 
Just as God provided a ram for Abraham to take the place of Isaac, he then provided himself in the form of a human to take the place of every other human who will place their faith in him. So this moment in Matthew 17 with the, the coin and the fish, it may seem like sort of an odd detail, but it's really building on that pattern that will culminate in his death and his resurrection. Speaking of it being an odd detail, though, it is, I'm sure the disciples thought that Jesus' instructions were pretty strange, right? Who's ever been told to go find a coin in a fish's mouth, right? This is not something normal. This wasn't just a normal occurrence that was a run-of-the-mill thing. Again, it was actually a pretty substantial sum of money just to be laying around in a fish. But they did it. No questions asked that we know of. They just went and did it. In, in the same way, we really need to be faithful to be obedient to God and follow his commands, even when it may seem strange or difficult or scary where God is leading us. But often God provides in unexpected ways when we do obey him in faith. We can know that he will provide. I'm going to share a story with you guys as an example. Anybody here ever heard of a guy named George Mueller? Pretty, pretty well-known evangelist. Uh, he was, he had just, he's famous for his incredible faith in God's provision. He was a Christian evangelist. He lived during the 1800s. He, was, he actually lived to be 92, which is super old for back then. He lived for almost the whole century of, of the 1800s. And he's best known for running the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. Throughout his lifetime, he cared for 10,024 orphans. That's a lot of people that he touched, influenced their lives. He provided educational opportunities for the orphans to the point that he was even accused by some of raising the poor above their natural station in British life. He established 117 schools which offered Christian education to more than 120,000 children. And he was not a wealthy man. And yet he did all of this without ever asking for charitable contributions. He never asked for donations. Well, that, he never asked directly. He asked for God to provide every day for the needs, for his needs and the needs of the orphanage. And God certainly did provide. And there's one famous story, probably the most famous story of that provision, comes from an account uh, from one of the orphans who was in his care at the time, Abigail Townsend Loaf. Um, in, in his book, George Mueller, Delighted in God, Roger Steers, the author, he recounts this story here. Early one morning, Abigail was playing in Mueller's garden on Ashley Down when he took her by the hand. Come, see what our father will do, he said. He led her into a long dining room. The plates and cups or bowls were on the table. But there was nothing else on the table but empty dishes. There was no food in the larder and no money to supply the need. And the children were standing waiting for breakfast. Children, you know we must be in time for school, said Mueller. Then lifting his hand, he prayed, Dear Father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. According to this account, a knock was then heard at the door. The baker stood there. Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast, and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 o'clock and baked some fresh bread, and I have brought it. Mueller thanked the baker and praised God for his, his care. Children, he said, we not only have bread, 
but this rare treat of fresh bread. Almost immediately, there came a second knock at the door. This time, it was the milkman who announced that his milk cart had broken down outside the orphanage and that he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so that he could empty his wagon and repair it. Pretty incredible, right? And this one particular story has become widely known. You may have heard it before. There's even a VeggieTales version of it out there that I got to listen to over and over and over again on our drive to Ohio. <laughs> Maybe why I thought of it for this uh, sermon. But it's just one of countless stories uh, like it from around the world. And I've heard stories I couldn't, unfortunately, think of any specific um, in time, but I've heard other people tell incredible stories of God's provision in their lives. It happens all the time. And it's, it's, it's consistent with how God is presented throughout all of Scripture, as well as how Jesus talks about the Father and describes the Father. Remember back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus spoke to his disciples about the Father and how the Father cares for his children. Matthew 10, 28 says, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Which sounds kind of scary at first, but then he says, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. He's offering this as, as comfort and assurance, even during difficult or painful circumstances. Because Jesus never promised, promises his followers that life will be comfortable or without difficulties, but he does promise the Father does see us. The Father knows us. He loves us, and he has, through Christ, provided an eternal hope and a security and, and sustenance. So, walking away from this passage... I'd say that at its core, the passage is really about Jesus' identity as the Son of God and his authority over all earthly rulers and, and governments. And when Jesus asks Peter from whom the kings of earth collect tax, it's his way of making the point that, uh, that kings and rulers do have the authority to collect taxes from their subjects, but they don't have authority over the eternal lives of sons of the children of God. Jesus is saying that he's above earthly rulers and governments, that he's the ultimate authority in our lives, and ultimately that trumps anything else. But there's also a practical aspect to this passage. That's the theological element. Practically, Jesus doesn't want to cause offense to the, his, the tax collectors, his fellow Jews, so he tells Peter to go catch a fish and find the shekel, and it's the exact amount needed to cover tax for both of them. And it's that reminder that we as, as believers, we should, number one, be always respectful and obedient to our earthly authorities, even when we don't agree with them, even when they are making crazy decisions, crazy policies. We should still do our best to follow the laws, to pay our taxes. And then finally, it encourages us to just trust in God's provision through that, knowing that he will provide for our needs, that he does see us and care for us and provide for us, even in practical and mundane aspects of our lives. And it's a reminder of that eternal spiritual sustenance that he gives us, that he provides us far greater uh, significance than, than physical needs. And for that, 
we ought to be just humbly, soberly, joyfully grateful. And so we're now going to take a few minutes to, to reflect on that, humbly, soberly, and joyfully. Uh, and Mike is going to come and, and lead us in communion.